This is unstructured. Hey everyone, super excited to bring Ginny Aguilar. And I hope I'm saying that correctly. Yes, sir, you are. Oh, sir. Hi. I, I, <laughs> I, I don't deserve the upgrade. Oh my. <laughs> I know Ginny from uh, the mixed mental arts community, and she also is a big time participant in the unstructured um, group on Facebook. We're very small, but mighty and growing. Hopefully yeah. more will join. And Ginny has been on Mixed Mental Arts. She has a podcast of her own, which is, I believe, the Primal Brain podcast. Yes, exactly. It's and, on iTunes and Stitcher. Okay, excellent. Um, you getting on Android anytime soon, too? or I will attempt to do those techie things soon. <laughs> <laughs> Have your assistant work on that. Yeah, I should hand that off. <laughs> I think she has a book coming out any day, too. I do. I think it will come out, uh, let's just say for this podcast, by April 10th. By April 10th. Excellent. We'll have to look out for that and definitely update the groups. Yes. Thank you. Now, Jenny is, um, I think, a particularly intriguing mix of a medical expert <laughs> and a dedicated mother. And I think I'm you not- just gave me an upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure which skill is more important. I feel like they kind of alternate back and forth and she'll go deep on the medical from a lot of things I hear, but then the concerned mother kicks in from the side say, what? Well, is that really super healthy? And I find that a a fascinating approach. It's interesting. I never thought of myself that way. You're you're totally correct though. Yeah. I can't turn that off. I've been a mom for a long time and now I'm a grandma and I I can't shut it off. (laughs) But in a funny way that almost makes you, I hope I say the right word, amalgamation of um, both Eastern and Western medicine. Definitely. And I'm I'm all about that. I I love, I don't even think there's both sides. I think there's, you know, multiple facets of uh, health and living. And I don't think you can extract health from living. So I'm, I'm trying to constantly look at a whole picture, which is hard. And I'm sure I'm missing a lot of things often, like we all are. But but that's sort of how I, I look at it. That, you know, if one of my kids has repetitive health issues, which hasn't been the case mostly, I don't just look at the issue. I always have to look at everything that's going on. You know, are they unhappy at school? Are they having conflict with a sibling or with me? So kind of always looking at as many facets as I can gather in my little brain. Now, I know you've brought it up on other podcasts, but what brought you into this particular field or expertise? Because you're very brain centric. And then I think you- right now, yes. Um, the brain thing was an accident, literally three of them. Um, I have four children, ages 24, 21, 16, and 12. And my 16 year old, he's 16 now, but when he was 12, he got like a lot of kids do. He got a concussion and he was just wrestling with dad in the living room. And then, um, just unfortunately a few weeks after that, he crashed his bike in front of the house. He did have a helmet on, but he got a fairly significant concussion, uh, following on a smaller one. And that generally is bad news for a lot of people. And he just didn't recover which seems super weird to me because I have a bunch of very healthy kids, really robust and they do pretty well most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, he recovered kind of, but not enough to go back to school. He had lots of symptoms that just persisted. So he ended up with post-concussion syndrome for about eight months going on a year um, before we kind of figured out 
what to do and how to do it. Now, what is post-concussion syndrome exactly? So that's just essentially where you have a head injury and then most people do recover, um, the great majority of them, but about 15 to 20% symptoms persist for unknown reasons. So they might continue on with like he would get dizzy when he was in the car. Um, He would get nauseous in the car as well. Um, He couldn't watch uh, a movie all the way through. It would give him a headache. He would feel dizzy. Um, Sleep was interrupted. His mood was very depressed, which is not like him. He's a very happy-go-lucky kid. Um, It was extremely frustrating because essentially all of a sudden you have a somewhat disabled child um, who should be getting better. But, you know, by all health markers, he should be rebounding from that, even if it took a little longer because there were two uh, small head injuries. So we did a lot of stuff um, because he couldn't go back to school. I quit my job and my Ph.D. and ended up homeschooling him because he had no cognitive deficits. He just couldn't tolerate the day at school. And I was like, well, he doesn't need to fall behind just because he can't do seven hours of school. Uh, so we just made all these changes and I, instead of spending all this time on my PhD, I just kept all those research logins and I was just like, I'm going to learn about this. What was your PhD in? Health education as well, okay. uh, which is not a super common degree. So sometimes I have to describe it to people. So it's a lot about the theories of learning, which is one thing, or theories of change. How do you help people change? Because changing your health is actually much harder than it a seems behavioral? like it should be. Is it behavioral so thing? Or? Some of it's behavioral. Um, it depends on what the setting is. We go through a lot of like models of like, if you were in public health, how would you approach the asthma problem? And, and then they use models to teach like what the best approaches are. Um, or then you learn a whole lot about motivational coaching or uh, one-on-one um, health coaching with people. So you learn all these kind of disparate things. You have to know a lot about health in general. Mm-hmm. So you learn a lot about that first. Then you learn a lot of like theory about learning and behavior change later. So that's sort of what that is. What do you do in cases like that? That brings alarms. You mentioned asthmatic um, situations and a lot of that is uh, definitively environmental, I believe. Right. And you have a problem had- with the population. You doesn't know that's what's causing it. And so then you have to launch like, so that would be a community education program that you would launch in whole. Like if you wanted to lower rates of asthma in a town. Mm-hmm. You know, but then you also might be doing like if you're a community health educator, which I've been before, um, you might also be sitting with personal clients in your office one on one, trying to elevate their understanding of what's causing their child's asthma. How do, how do you help them cope with it if, uh, let's say, they're not able to afford to leave? That they are um, in a, a particular environment and, you know, it's not always easy to just, well, let's just move sometimes. Right. Uh, most environmental problems that cause asthma, you can control somewhat in the home. Um, So that's where you go. And so I did a lot of uh, home visits as a parent coach. I was trained in this very specific program. Part of it was health and wellness. So we would track kids five and under. And so if you see the child has certain health problems, then it's your job to come in. And when you're in the house, you can see, do the parents vacuum on a regular basis? Do they take all the stuffed animals out of the child's room? Do they remove lacy curtains and things that hold dust and mold and fungus, um, animal dander? Do they separate the animal from the child? And so you coach them into behavior that helps at least lower the symptoms. Now, not to be devil's advocate, but to do a flip side on that. 
Have you read up on the studies where they found that the farmer's kids were far more robust than a lot of uh, city kids because of the animal dander and the exposure to (laughs) elements, et cetera, especially when we're very young and the peanut allergies can also be possibly attributed to overprotectionism. Uh, right. Early. So my daughter is currently giving the 10 month old tiny amounts of peanut butter. So what I was taught at that time is wrong. <laughs> right. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that stuff helps um, to reduce that. But what really helps and it's you can't go back in time. So if you meet a five year old who has this problem, you're not going to go back in sure. time. But for instance, would be one of the number one things if you'd like to lower asthma would be lowering the C-section rate. Because kids who are not exposed to the proper bacteria while they're being born are far more likely to have upper respiratory issues as adults. Hmm. So bacteria has a tremendous amount to do. And that includes like your environmental exposure. So keeping kids too clean, not letting them play outside and let their immune system do the small work when they're little, which is, you know, my grandson was just eating dirt at the park yesterday. (laughs) It's like really getting into it, you know. (laughs) My daughter was finally like, okay, I really feel like that's enough dirt. <laughs> <laughs> it may not be bad for you, but I don't have to look at it. <laughs> right. It's a mess. mess. Um, so, the, and the thing about what I was learning at that time, and like, it was very interesting to work with people, you know, in their homes and to be able to help them that way. But it was the same experience I had when I was a, well, quite a while ago, a childbirth educator is that I was always like too little, too late and the wrong information. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, I might help patch it up, but I'm far more interested in catching it from the beginning, sure. if, if possible. Sure. You know, it's not always possible, but um, teaching people knowledge like before they need it is certainly helpful. Right. And I think a lot of things are almost counterintuitive mm-hmm. in our mind, like having big, soft, comfy running shoes must be better I, for you than running barefoot. Oh, my. Yeah. Yes. I, you know, I trained for that, the one and only like big trail race I ever did. And I did it in, in barefoot shoes, but I trained up to do that. And my feet were not prepared (laughs) to do that when I started. But I mean, ever since then, I barely wear any kind of structured shoe at all. Um, and I have much healthier feet for it. Okay. So you were a runner then? I went, I just, you know, it was one of those things like, yeah. So the way I think of running is this, I'm not good at it naturally. I really am not. Um, I'm not fast or I don't feel awesome when I run generally, mm-hmm. but I feel like it's a skill that all humans should have. Mm-hmm. And so I do practice being able to sprint. I feel like this is something I should be able to do if I want to. Mm-hmm. And so, and I kind of enjoy sprinting and I'm not fast, but I can do it. And so mostly that's how I do it. But I was living in Colorado at the time. And I had um, some other friends, lots of people trail run in Colorado, mountain states. They love it. Long distance running. And they have all these crazy races there. And uh, a good enough handful of my friends were like, we have to do this one race that I was like, I could probably do that if I had enough lead time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I said yes for some silly reason. Where in Colorado were you? Uh, Durango, Colorado. Okay. That's Uh, Southwestern Colorado near the four corners. Okay. So, so not on the front. Kansas. <laughs> no, oh. uh, closer to, let's say three hours from Albuquerque. Oh, uh, okay. Only a couple hours to the border of Utah and, uh, not that far into Arizona. So okay. in that very corner, like sort of where the mountains end and the desert starts. That's right. That's right. Sorry. 
Yeah, the San Juan, the San Juan Mountains. That's that area. Okay. A beautiful area of the country. It's very remote. Yeah, I have friends who are in Boulder, and Boulder is the endurance athlete capital of the country at a minimum. It is. Yeah. Uh, John, my husband, went to school at University of Colorado Boulder, and we lived in family housing there. So uh, also familiar with that crowd. Very similar crowd, Boulder and Durango. Well, the They're like the two, the two liberal communities of Colorado. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Colorado is a great state. It's very fun. But yes, of course, in Durango, you have all these other endurance athletes and, and uh, you know, random people who are not that athletic will be like, oh, we could do that really incredibly <laughs> difficult race. I'm sure we could do it. <laughs> well, to me, if I were living in Boulder, it would just be a place to make me feel humble because you'll be yeah. on the same trail as world champions, you know, and, and you often Boulder. are. And it's obvious. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Mountain biking is the same way. Skiing, snowboarding is the same way. Kayaking is the same way. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> The bar is pretty high in those places for, for physical effort, um, which, you know, has an interesting psychological effect on just your average person there. People well, I, are fitter. Yes. Oh, <laughs> it is a, one of the fittest states, I think, in a lot of surveys. And I, I yeah. think it's a positive effect. Um, no, you want to be a world mm-hmm. champion, but if you're running with world champion or near them or people who are like them, you tend to, you tend to grow to the area or gr- get better. Mm-hmm. If you're surrounded oh. by talent, you get more talented. It's uh, yeah, I think overall it's good for you. At least you're encouraged to like go outside and do something because okay. everybody's essentially doing that, which is great. And you know, California is very similar to where we live now. Um, there's a lot of surfers and runners and bikers, and uh, people in, enjoy being outside. So that's sort of the norm, and it's easier to have probably a healthier lifestyle when that is the norm around you. Now, in passing, before I heard you mention that you were an ad executive in mm. the past. And so I, 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 I just happened to hear it and I'm like, wow, that's very different than the health and yeah. aspect. Now, when was that and how does that line up? So long ago, um, so I grew up mostly in Fairfield, Iowa. I'm very nomadic, so I will name multiple places where I've lived and we can do a timeline, but it will take up the whole show. So <laughs> I've lived in a lot of places. I lived in Fairfield, Iowa because my parents followed the Transcendental Meditation Movement and that's where we ended up settling. And I met my first husband who I divorced from um, there. And when we got together, he worked in, the adver- there was an advertising agency in Fairfield, Iowa that's still there. And it's very involved in the, um, the wave of infomercials that struck the country during a certain period. And if you're old enough, you will remember these, there were so many and it was such an interesting format. So that's what this company specialized in. And my husband at the time worked for them. Hmm. And when we moved to Colorado, I moved with him to Durango, Colorado in 1994. Um, he was working with another company who was involved in the same exact business um, and eventually we started our own company. Um, and basically he was, um, he bought time for all of those clients. Mm. Um, so Murad skincare and Tybo and <laughs> all those things you'd see on TV all the time. Was it Tony little with the blonde hair and he's very muscular and he had with the weird the, exercise machines, the ponytail out the back of ball his ball cap. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't remember who our other clients were, but, um, that was not my plan. You know, I was essentially like a young mom. 
Mm-hmm. And we started this business and I could do the books and help with this and that. And it's not like buying time on TV, brain surgery. Um, it's mostly just a lot of work. And so, yeah, we ran a small advertising agency that ran a lot of the bigger clients at the time. And then um, later, I worked as a marketing director for a company that did, um, you know, when you go in Whole Foods and somebody has samples and you can try it, which is like all the time. Um, most of the time, that's a company, an outside company that placed that person there. Mm. And so I did national campaigns for like Annie's and Evolution Juice from Starbucks. Um, we had all kinds of stuff, the Applegate meats. I mean, we had a lot of clients, Coconut Bliss ice cream. Um, so I helped them roll out these national tasting campaigns. Mm. Dirty um, secret, I hate Whole Foods. Right. <laughs> I've been in it one time. <laughs> Oh, really? One time? <laughs> yes, they, they brought it here in Hampton, no, not in Hampton, but they have it at Newport News and Virginia Beach. I went to the Virginia Beach one and... Yep, I booked people there. Oh, no, we also no. have something called Fresh Market, which is yeah. uh, very comparable, except the best comparison I could think of is I was reading a book one time where a Russian detective came to the United States and he asked the detective what is it you notice about here that's different? She said, there's so many signs everywhere. (laughs) And if you go to a gas station, how many stickers and signs are on the pump about no smoking, the price, this, that, everything. Mm -hmm. Whole foods is that with GMO. (laughs) Fair trade. And it is the most pompous, arrogant, vibe of any place I've ever been in. It, it's like the shelves themselves are so self-congratulatory that it, it just bothered me at an elemental level. Your background is showing. <laughs> I don't know. Fresh market manages yeah. to have all the same okay. products without the labeling yeah. without. So know. I also was a buyer at Whole Foods. So I worked at Whole Foods as well. Um, Oops. And, and I don't know. I don't hold any great love for them. The one thing that's interesting about Whole Foods is one of the meetings that you will go to when you are first hired there is one that is, and I apologize for any train noise you hear, there is a train that goes through Carpentria and there's no stopping it or making it quiet. (laughs) Um, So um, one of the first meetings you go to when you're an employee there is one where they discourage you from unionizing Mm -hmm. in the most blatant and aggressive fashion. And of course you have a brand new job. (laughs) so Mm -hmm. It's very uncomfortable because you're like, wait, I thought unions were good. And especially for most people, they don't know a lot about unions or unionizing or whatnot. And I believe if I'm remembering this right, they've shut down stores before they unionized. Mm -hmm. Um, they're a very interesting company. And you know, I had, I just worked for them when I was finishing my master's degree. It was, you know, a part-time job and it was, it was fairly fun, you know, to, buy vitamins and skincare products for my department and pick what got to go on the shelves and see if it sold. I mean, you know, <laughs> it was, sure. I worked with nice people, you know, it was fun. I totally get that vibe. There's a video you would like called it's going down in the whole foods parking lot. And it's a satire about whole foods. You might like that. Probably. It's like a rap I, video. <laughs> I guess South park might've done a whole foods. Bit mm-hmm. too. I'm sure they did. Um, and there's lots of alternatives like where we live. There's a, um, in Carpentrio, this tiny town. So we have a tiny little health food store that's locally owned by this really nice couple that we're friends with. And, and that's where I probably pick up most of that stuff. But in sometimes if we're traveling, 
I, I have celiac, so I have to be gluten-free and I'm also mm. dairy-free because I have multiple food allergies and, uh, I will open up that map and just <laughs> search for whole foods because I know I, I can get food I can eat. It's a default. And I don't, yeah, it's a default, um, sure. which I don't always like. It's like ordering stuff off Amazon. Mm. <laughs> you know, I could try harder. There's well, probably something I'm else. guilty of that too. Um, I'm v- getting very concerned about Amazon who, by the way, bought whole foods right? and um, <laughs> how they're kind of slowly taking over the world. And meanwhile, I have a couple of buttons at the house that are just so easy to press. Oh, <laughs> I haven't gone that far. I just know, you know, for a, a mom who's busy driving more is not cool. I hate having sure. more errands. Too, so if I can reduce the errands, but that's still a fairly, um, it's, it's a lazy way out for sure. No, yeah, well, I don't open another browser window. So how lazy right. is that? I know, there are right. other places that'll match and beat them, but it's just such an easy default. So I totally oh understand. So that's how I got into marketing, advertising, um, working in that field. And I went from sort of the, the infomercial stuff. And then after my divorce, um, I was a buyer at Whole Foods and then worked for this other company doing these national marketing campaigns. And you know, I like that. I used a lot of these products. I was, I was familiar with this whole, you know, section of business and, um, it's fairly fun to help people roll out a new product, but, um, definitely didn't hold much meaning for me as a person whatsoever. You know, it's essentially a job and I'm not very fond of jobs. So okay. now, <laughs> is this when you, um, did you go back to school to get the medical, um, Yes. So, um, I worked at Whole Foods when I got my master's, um, and I was working on my PhD and working full time. And this was a much better job for me as a community health educator. That was way more fun, way up my alley. So that's where I did a lot of the parent coaching, community health education. I, I did all kinds of programs. They were very fun, um, really involved in the community, um, lots of teaching and learning myself, which I also like. I, I'm always game for learning more stuff. Um, yeah. So that's sort of where that went. And that was the, once I became a community health educator, I made a commitment. I would not go back to being involved in advertising or marketing unless it was for my own, own stuff. Well, ironically, um, wouldn't the two be complimentary if you're trying to, uh, sell or promote a lifestyle or a behavior? Definitely helpful (laughs) to know those things. (laughs) I mean, it doesn't hurt. I, you know, I still am probably not doing like 80% 80% of the things I know I ought to for my own work. <laughs> that's more a matter of time sure. than anything. Yeah. I, I have limited time to devote to the things that, cause I still homeschool my two youngest kids. Um, so that cuts into my time that I can work. Is it humility too slightly in the sense that <laughs> you, it's easy to trumpet somebody else, but maybe oh, you get yeah. a little shy about trumpeting. Hey, look at me, look at me. I hate doing that. I don't like it at all. Um, it's very uncomfortable and I actually am a fairly introverted person. So it's doubly uncomfortable. Um, even if I know I have to remind myself that what I have to give to people, uh, whether it's a book or the podcast or this or that, that it will help them. Mm-hmm. I have to remind myself of that. Then it's just not, or there's no, there's no randomness to what I'm doing that. Um, so in the end, if I'm helping somebody, I feel like it's, it's worth the effort of being like, Hey, look at me for a minute. <laughs> you know? We're probably similar in that then. Um, is it a case where if you are playing a role or performing a task or a job, you feel confident in doing that versus just walking up to somebody as I, I'm me. Oh, that's a great question. And yes, totally. Yeah. 
in fact, if you tell like, I don't really get nerves doing public speaking, which is very odd. Mm-hmm. Um, and it must be probably because I'm in the teacher role or I'm in that role of sharing something really important to me. And so I generally don't get nervous and I'm happy talking to small or large groups. Um, I find it, it's fun and engaging and interesting, but it's definitely a role that okay. I play. I like doing you, that. Is that why you have a partner for the podcast? Um, you know, it's interesting. I wasn't planning that at all. Um, Rio works as an assistant for both my husband and I, um, but she's also an accomplished artist and a very smart woman. And she, um, actually self recovered from a grievous and horrific, uh, head injury. Hmm. And this was when she was, I think 17 or 19. I can't remember. Um, she had a terrible snowboarding accident and she died for a minute on the mountain and then subsequently went through a lot of hell trying to figure out how to get back to her normal. And art was a part of that. She has a very interesting story. And I just, when I hired her and then found out about her background and then I was planning on doing this podcast, I was like, let's just go, let's do this together. And, um, she's currently also in school full time, getting her master's as a psychotherapist. Mm. So she has this, uh, complimentary and other take. That's cool. So how did you meet her exactly? Uh, did you just hire her and then learn all that about her or did you- I hired her? Um, because one of my questions when I was interviewing people was what's the most difficult experience you've been through and what did you do about it? And that was her answer. And, um, I hired her sight unseen. I was actually traveling when I Mm. did the phone interview and I said, you're hired. (laughs) I haven't met you yet, but you're the right one. She's amazing. Um, Yeah. Rio's wonderful, wonderful person. Well, considering your interests, if she went through that, it was almost tailor made. Like, well, what about you? This is what I observe from the outside, but, uh, what is it from experiencing it? You kind of both sides. Yeah, her depth is, uh, so she helped edit my book and would catch things that were important um, where I didn't say something that maybe people on the outside wouldn't know. Um, And she has a different perspective Um, and she's younger than me and isn't a mom yet. And so she has a a different perspective that I forget sometimes from, you know, being in a family and, and not having been in college for a while or, you know, in different scenarios like that. So yeah, she's, she's wonderful compliment to me. And, and I like her as friend and, and as a person. And then she ended up working part-time for my husband as well, just helping him with some marketing things for his business. Very cool. So, yeah. yeah. She's very flexible, which is nice too. <laughs> and your husband works with stone, if I recall. Yes. Uh, John owns, he's a stonesmith, a master stonesmith. And so he mostly builds stone, um, in the old world fashion. So no mortar, all hand tooled, generally, um, Although they use grinders and things like that. Um, but no they're all his, his designs. And uh, yeah, he builds things that are big and small and everything in between. He's you're very, not, very artistic. You're not going to challenge him and say, next project, only use copper tools. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> you know, he's a little bit obsessed with this project in France they've been working on for a long time that's um, built in the 13th century style of, of castle building with the original mm. tools in the garb, speaking French, like the whole thing. Like you can come and work there, but you have to know French. You have to work with these old tools. You have to live there and and like wear the things, eat the things they did. Like it's mm. original to the nth degree. Hmm. And I think it's going to be finished next year. That's cool. A multi-year project. Yeah. He loves stuff like that. 
But he has kids, so he's not allowed to go do that. Ah, okay. So the subject did come up. Abandon us for a year and go (laughs) go work in France. (laughs) Well, maybe get started another project here. Oh yeah, he's always got something cooking. Yeah. Well, cool. Um, You've focused mostly on the brain, but I notice that you seem to definitely branch out a little bit more into overall lifestyle. Um, you've mentioned diet. Uh, I imagine that is your diet spawned out of your own personal diet and going around, or is it just something you're interested in and follow? Well, nutrition is really a critical piece to general health. And so when I work with, let's say clients who are recovering from brain injury, it's almost always nutritional work as part of what we're doing. Um, almost everyone in America needs some tweaking to their diet. Although just, you know, I don't believe in one diet or another. Um, I believe in people experimenting and really doing what works for them and by works, meaning that they're actually healthy, (laughs) not like I can tolerate eating a lot of ice cream. Um, eventually, you know, your tolerance runs out and you end up with symptoms and then you get sick and then you have disease later. So, so I work with people on that. Um, Mostly my clients, since I started the whole primal brain thing or, you know, in the brain thing, brain world, sorry, uh, in terms of healing from that. But I do have some people who have been like performance oriented. So maybe like biohacking kind of people and mm. people who would like to be uh, better, more of what they think they can be. They're on a self-improvement tack um, or people who are under a tremendous amount of stress and pressure. That would be the other kind of people I've worked with who... The stress is probably wearing down their brain resilience and and they're having symptoms like a lot of brain fog or forgetfulness, that kind of thing. So I've worked on that, um, but my interest is much broader. So my interest is in ancestral or evolutionary health. And once we've launched the Primal Brain book and I'm doing this, I actually have a bunch of other projects behind that that are more broad. And I definitely have worked a lot, uh, with my other group of clients, which I don't advertise right now or anything or, um, women, I I work a lot with women who have hormonal imbalance, uh, weight gain, um, going through menopause or recovering from having a baby. So I do a lot in that sphere as well. But yeah, nutrition's always at the core of that, um, along with lifestyle stuff. And I really hate the word lifestyle just so everyone knows. I really don't like it. I don't, I just can't find another word that I was going to say, do you have an alternative? No, I wish I did. I've thought about it a lot and I just don't have another word. It's, um, it's funny because when I'm talking about like core things, they're not just like lifestyle seems like kind of fluffy to me. And when I'm talking about, we need to adjust your sleep. That's, that's really core to how healthy you can be. Behavioral patterns. Yeah. Behavioral patterns. And it's funny because I feel like we live in a culture that thinks if we think it up and can do it, that we'll just adjust to it. Mm-hmm. And that is patently untrue and observable everywhere. <laughs> but people still believe that. So they believe that because they can access the Internet 24-7 and binge on movies until 2 in the morning, that somehow they'll just adapt to that, that kind of lifestyle shift. And so I've talked to certain clients that have like that kind of a bad habit, let's say. And I'm like, well, you know, you need to really get back to following a circadian rhythm to the best of your ability. Mm-hmm. And they're like, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> well, that's really core to like what your hormones are doing and how much energy you have and your weight. 
is deeply impacted by how much you sleep and when you sleep. And so, you know, it's a little bit of tweaking and teaching and, you know, I don't live outside in a cave and without all the modern conveniences. I, I also live in a home and have computers and all that, but, um, you have to actively manage a modern lifestyle or essentially it will make you sick. But you turn, I think you turn some of the stuff off at certain times of day and things like that, mm-hmm. right? So at night when everyone's done, which in our family is fairly early, the baby in the house and younger kids and stuff. So usually by 10, uh, the Wi-Fi is unplugged. We don't use any blue lights at night. So I basically have um, candles and amber lights all over the house. So once the sun goes down, uh, those are the lights that we use. So we're not um, basically exposing ourselves to that blue spectrum, blue and green spectrum of the, the light, which doesn't exist for us at night. And we're very sensitive to it. And the simplest way is that if you're exposed to a lot of that at night, um, it suppresses melatonin. And everyone's like, oh, it suppresses melatonin. Then you're not sleeping. That totally makes sense. It's a lot more complicated than that. And there's a lot more that goes on with that. Like, for instance, melatonin doesn't just have to do with what you sleep or how you sleep or putting you to sleep. Melatonin is really important to brain health. Um, so it's, it's one of those really important things that needs to be working properly. Um, those are a lot of really interesting research out there about, about that. So that's just one of the like lifestyle things we do. It's really not that hard. I I don't suffer for it. (laughs) You know, I I can't help but think about, um, camping or something like Mm -hmm. if you go camping, you'll probably be asleep by nine o'clock. As soon as you go out there, your body adjusts so quickly to the changes in light, right? Mm -hmm. And it does so, I mean, you know this, like now it's getting to be spring. We've got longer days. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny because, I mean, around solstice time, around the end of December, I'm tired at like 8 o'clock, 8.15. I wake up early, but that's when I'm naturally tired. And so I also pay attention to that. I'm like, oh, I'm tired. I'm going to go to sleep. You know, like it's this odd thing. Like I don't have to stay up. There's no rule. It's a good you know, luxury to have. Yeah, it's nice, and it's funny because that is that is often like my only time alone, or you know, when things are more quiet. Um, but I sort of try to go with that circadian rhythm, and in the summer, I'll be awake a lot more. I will go to bed much later. I mean, especially midsummer. We used to live in Seattle, and the sun goes down at midsummer at ten ten thirty. It comes up at four ish in the morning mm. and it's amazing how little sleep you can live on and feel good. You're just sort of following that rhythm. So we, I don't know if you know about this. Um, John and I did a, a four month experiment two years ago in the summer. And like I said, John's very artistic and he designed this whole, um, pop-up canvas house for us that actually collapses and, uh, folds into a trailer, like a utility trailer we oh, have. Wow. Okay. Um, so we have these really beautiful canvas structures are really gorgeous cause they let in light and mm-hmm. just the, he was sort of messing around with these different ideas. So we have this one we call the lounge and we have uh, kiln dried ashwood decks that like pop out from the thing. And it ends up being a gorgeous and beautiful room, mm-hmm. um, that we used as our lounge, our kitchen and everything else. And then we had two other smaller ones that we would pop up with them. But for four months we lived in those mm. traveling with the kids. So we were outside all the time, except for small breaks in coffee houses and that kind of thing. It sounds like a mobile yurt almost. but It's like that. Yeah. They don't look like that. They look like fancier, but uh, <laughs> they're, they're um, that was really, really interesting. Because what you mentioned about just adjusting immediately to sleeping once you go camping. 
Yeah, I just, I feel like um, if we are truthful to ourselves, because I don't sleep enough and mm-hmm. I drink too much. <laughs> and, uh, right. <laughs> all the bad things in life, but realistically. But also fun things. Yeah. But electricity has yeah. <laughs> not been around long at all. It's been not. a couple seconds if you look at the timeline of human history. Yeah. And it's enabled us and given us a lot of um, stimulation that we aren't necessarily wired to handle right now. And I think yeah. about, have you noticed that in nature you can drive up on a deer and they ignore you? Right. But when you get out, they go, oh my God, and then they run. Right. But that's because the car, they have not evolved to understand or comprehend. Right. There's no schema for a car. There's definitely exactly. a schema for a human being. Right. So <laughs> like, like, ah, human. <laughs> so I kind of feel like we're sort of in that same boat but we think we're too clever to exactly acknowledge that we're actually genetically stupid. I don't know. But I, no, I you're totally genetic. spot on. It, what was it? Someone said it might have been Hunter or someone else, but or a quote from another book. But like we have this strange mix of ignorance and arrogance. Mm-hmm. And so this is one thing where we came up with electricity and then lights. And then we use these lights at night when generally we would have had fire only like uh, some sort of burning something. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that humans stayed up well past dark with fire. I don't think it's the staying up that's the problem. I think it's just the, the light exposure. And if you study the eye and the brain, you realize that light exposure is critical to so many systems that we are an incredibly light sensitive species and we're not nocturnal. <laughs> like, no. We are not nocturnal. And you, all those uh, studies on shift workers, you know, indicate that nocturnal existence for human beings very damaging i've done it it's three o'clock in the morning is awful i mean it is it's just brutal you you feel it yeah i mean you can feel that everything is awry the world's upside down you can't sleep during the day it is and so you're walking around with a kind of a hangover all the time without even drinking Mm -hmm. you just you're off that is how being extremely overtired feels. It feels very much like a hangover. And mm-hmm. it's funny because to me, that feeling, the feeling of hangover, the feeling of being very overtired feels like gunky. That's mm-hmm. always the way I feel. But that's actually also true, right? That all mm-hmm. those systems, they do, like, I'm not a fan of detoxing because you do that every night when you go to bed, <laughs> right? So all your organs have a clock and this, all these clocks run off of light information, they don't run off of other information, like what you think, like they're all automatic, but they are informed by light. And so this is a really important part of living. And, and mostly we just are ignorant of it, but we're also arrogant enough to think it doesn't matter. And yet there's evidence everywhere. If you just look that it matters a lot. So that's some of the stuff like I would coach people with in terms of like, how can you adjust this and still have your life and still have fun, for instance, because that's also a human need. Mm-hmm. Right. So you can't ignore that. So that's what I'm talking about. Like this whole picture. Mm-hmm. One of my least favorite things is people get really tribalized over food and diet. They get really rigid and very unfun and they forget <laughs> that food is an emotional experience that you share with other people, or you might even share it with your dog. Like sharing bacon with your dog is really fun. Right. And it mm-hmm. feels good. <laughs> you it's know, so cultural it goes away. Cultural back. Thing. Yeah. You can't just forget that and throw it out the door. That's why dieting is very hard. Because suddenly maybe it's so-and-so's birthday and on so-and-so's birthday, you always have the traditional whatever, fill in the blank. 
And now all of a sudden, because of your proscribed diet, you're saying, oh, I can't. And then you're outside the group, which has a big physiological impact that's not good for you. Mm -hmm. So I try to really see like, what are you doing right now? You know, and how can we just shift that so you can keep doing what feels good to you in your group? Because that's really important. You don't want to isolate yourself. And that I think that's why people get tribalized over food and they just join a new group. Like right. they join the paleo group or the CrossFit people or the vegan people or whatever, the keto people. I mean, there's all over the board. Have you and then additionally, Souls? yes. Yes. It's a fantastic book. book. Fantastic yes. book. I highly recommend that, especially if you're in nutrition or you're in, um, it's actually what I found is it's attractive to become tribalized. Like I've fought myself mm-hmm. a little bit on that. Um, mostly realizing that like, for instance, when my son was going through brain recovery, we did do nutritional ketosis. This is a great thing to do for your brain. If you can tolerate the diet, which is very difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if anyone's familiar, but, uh, ketosis is uh, higher fat, moderate protein, Mm -hmm. very low carbohydrate. Um, and the, the switch to that can be a little difficult once you're in it. It's not that hard, but the diet itself, eating it is a little strange. Um, but it's great for your brain. It's great for healing the brain. And so I did it with him because he's a child and, mm-hmm. and we're asking him to do something really difficult essentially. And then he had a little group to do it with, which is, you know, me and dad. And so we did that. Um, but I have some question marks about how good nutritional ketosis is for like older women who are in menopause because it has significant impacts mm-hmm. on your hormonal system. And like, for instance, right now, I don't feel good when I edge that way. So like currently right now, I'm eating more carbs than I was eating two years ago. My weight didn't change. None of my health markers changed. I was just paying attention to like my digestion isn't liking this. I don't feel that great. Um, I feel like some of my hormonal markers are a little off. So I just adjusted and I feel better and I'm not worrying about it. I'm into the endurance world and Mm -hmm. it is very huge amongst uh, some in the ultra runner community, um, some in the... uh, Ironman community, ironically, not the winners, but <laughs> I've read a couple of things. I think outside magazine has done a little bit mm. of uh, a couple of articles on this and the endurance world. And like these people who've go- gone through, you know, this adaptation to fat burning, um, mm. and then seeing if, but it seems like it takes a longer period of time to a- adapt and then make gains in their performance. Well, if all, they do all endurance athletes on the pointed end are fat burners. If of course really, they are. If you really get to it. Um, and the Kenyans, I'll keep, I'll always bring them up because they're top performers. So you mm-hmm. have to look at them and say, what are they? Well, they eat an extremely high carb diet. Hmm. They're traditional food and it is right. a dietary tradition they've had for thousands of years. So it fits them. It fits their profile and it's natural and good for, good for them. But they're all right. fat burners. Yeah. They, they're well, heart your rate body ideally should be able to flip flop. And it does every night if you're healthy between being in a state of ketosis and being in a state of burning sugars, burning glucose. And like your brain has receptors for both ketones that are produced in the liver and end up in the brain as energy instead of glucose or glucose. It has receptors for both. And ideally it seems like you should just be metabolically flexible, right? Right. Shouldn't kill you to go without carbs for a week or day or whatever. You should be all right which is also the intermittent fasting sort of is a, maybe an in-between, like mm-hmm. not going all the way into nutritional ketosis, but testing your body's metabolic flexibility by fasting sometimes. Well, I think also great for our, the brain. I personally think a lot of our issues as 
being American. Yeah. We have too many choices and too many options, so we can pick all the bad ones. At the same yeah, time. overwhelmed by choices and abundance, which is mm-hmm. a little odd, um, which is why intermittent fasting is great for Americans because maybe you don't have to adhere to a certain diet, but you sort of give yourself that metabolic flexibility on a certain day. And a lot of people have plenty of willpower to do that. And they also find out when they try to do a fast, they're not metabolically flexible. Like they get sick and they feel terrible and mm-hmm. you, know, you should be able to flip back and forth. And I think that's a sign of a body that's probably fairly flexible and healthy. Sure. Sure. And it depends on what you're doing. Like, I'm really glad you brought up the ketonic um, diet and women because that has come up in the endurance world that there's some women who have gotten very, very messed up. I bet. You know, the Those CrossFit two things diets, together. Yeah. That a lot of these very meat oriented, um, paleo oriented diets mm-hmm. that are huge in the CrossFit world and things like that. There are some problems that especially women seem to have with them. If I had, um, I would say a small handful of female clients who were sort of into that culture and call it a culture. Cause that's what it is, but who had a lot of autoimmune stuff going on and had not considered that it's like that you adopt this culture. And so obviously diet must be fine. Cause that's part of the culture instead of like going, how do I feel? Oh, well now all of a sudden I have eczema. Why do I have eczema all over? Something's wrong. You know, right. and then looking at diet and lifestyle and that kind of a thing to to balance it. Like, like my husband has a, the body and the physicality and the energy to do these like crazy workouts. Like mm-hmm. he loves throwing a boulder down a hill and the the workout. The only workout is getting that thing back up the hill. Sometimes the workout is thirty minutes. Sometimes it's two hours. This is something he does with his little crew. Sometimes, um, <laughs> other times they'll have you know odd things like a giant tire, but instead of doing tire flipping, which he thinks is lame, they have to carry it somewhere like far okay. away, <laughs> you know, okay. or he has like giant logs and they'll have to, as a team, you know, work that log somewhere. Was he a seal? Um, what was that? Was he a seal? No, he was in the Marines. Okay. The log training makes me think seal. It's a it does, major yeah, I think that's core common. component. <laughs> but he, you know, he likes to do stuff like that. He has the body physicality energy is a very tough, thick, you know, wide body. And, um, I can do some of that stuff for fun sometimes, but it doesn't fit me very well. I don't right. feel that great. Uh, I get injuries easier than he does. I'm, I'm a strong person. I, I have good endurance. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm fit. You know, there's all those things that are true about me, but like that kind of workout doesn't work for me. So I don't go to CrossFit that mm-hmm. it's, it looks fun. And some of those moves I do at home on my own, I have kettlebells. We have all the workout equipment here. Um, so I do a lot of that stuff, but I do it to my own, at my own pace. I do it. Yeah. That's the key is just like, I know me. Mm -hmm. CrossFit, CrossFit is awesome for a variety of exercises. My issue with it is it's competitive exercising. That, Oh, that's, I'm so glad you said that. That's the reason I don't go. It's not the moves. I can do those, but I cannot be in an environment where I'm going to hurt myself because I feel like I have to somehow be better than the person next to me. And I will tell you a really short story about a CrossFit gym in Seattle. And I was there, um, observing a class that John was in because we had to go somewhere right after. And so I just, it's a short class. I'll just hang out and then we'll go. And in the class, um, were two pregnant women, which is fine except for this. Um, the one was a little over four months and 
it came to part of the workout where they were doing scorpions. And I don't know if people are familiar with these. You lay on the floor on your stomach and you bend your legs so your feet are up. And then you roll to one side and let your foot touch on the backside of your back. So imagine being in sort of pregnant and she's over four months pregnant and doing this. The other pregnant woman was extremely pregnant, like almost due. She did not do the scorpions, but she had two torn Achilles tendons and was still working out. And I asked John, I said, what are you doing here? I said, this is horrifying, horrifying what's happening here. It's probably illegal. And these two women are crazy. They've lost it with this culture Mm. and forgot that they're women. They're pregnant. Um, the woman who's pregnant, both of them have, you have this hormone called relaxin, Mm -hmm. you know, that helps all of not just your muscles, but your ligaments and tendons loosen. So when Mm -hmm. you have the baby, your pelvis actually moves the whole thing kind of, kind of breaks apart a little bit and moves and makes room. So imagine doing those types of exercises while you have this hormone going through loosening everything up so your structure is sort of not as solid. It was nuts. And that might have been the first time I really thought about like culture, behavior, health. And I was like, okay, hold on. They're doing that because they believe this is a good thing to do, but patently it's not in the physical world. But in their mind and in this culture, this is ideal. Oh, yeah. You know, crazy. It's a, well, I think it goes well with an exercise bulimia. Mm, That's true. Yeah. And we Uh, probably have a lot of that, the over-exercising and and then, you know, social media sort of pushes the over-concern about how you're supposed to look or, or looking a certain way. I mean, I feel if it's on Ostrava, you didn't. Oh, wow. Yeah. So then constantly monitoring yourself and having to share that monitoring with other people. Mm-hmm. Like I do yoga and I go to a yoga studio, but I don't, I rarely post about my yoga or what I'm doing mm-hmm. or what happened in class or, or check in. I don't also check in there because right. that's my business. <laughs> I do yoga for me mostly. Well, and that can, it can sometimes feel a little pretentious too. Like, yeah. um, when I, if I run a marathon or a big race, I'm pretty happy about it. I'll post it. I yeah. just did that. Be proud but, of yourself. But I and don't. And the people who love you want to see that. Right. But just yeah. that. They don't need to know about every run I have. I run <laughs> multiple times a week. And oh. it's on Strava. It's on Garmin. So my friends who are runners, who have their runs on Garmin and Strava, right. things like that, they all see it. But you're it, in a club it, sort of like, right? Contract. You're in the group. Right. Yeah. That's what we do here. We share runs, exactly. Um, but I don't, I don't really want to see it on Facebook. And right. I imagine most of the people I interact with don't want to see my runs on Facebook. They're not interested in running. True. That's true. Yeah. I'm definitely, I have some other friends who post every run and I don't look at it cause I don't care. <laughs> like, right. I'm glad they're running. It's cool. But right. yeah, I don't, I don't care. It's a, it's a strange thing. Everything should be public and everything should be out there. And, um, it, I find it really odd, really odd what, lack it, of privacy. It makes me think of something. I, I was listening to one of your podcasts with Rio and mm. the idea of studies came up mm-hmm. and how there's a ton of studies out there that are not being acknowledged, or I was going to argue there's a ton of studies out there that are not being done. And my, also that <laughs> my thought is that, 
especially coming from the running world, different things like that, studies tend to follow dollars. And if my study can't help you sell a better pair of shoes, I just don't really have the money to give you. Yeah, it's a terrible oversight of, um, I don't know, allowing the free market or commercial enterprise to to dictate important things is probably in some ways a mistake, although I don't know another alternative that makes sense. I'm somewhat anti-authority in many, many ways. (laughs) So Mm. any authoritative body, I sort of am skeptical about because they Mm -hmm. probably are a club and a, a culture and they have certain things they believe and they don't believe. And I, I don't know how you're supposed to override that all the time um, in order to have some kind of clarity. I don't know if it's an override or if it could be an additive. I, to me, it's mm. how to figure out a way to get the other study in um, mm-hmm. comparatively. So, yes, go ahead and run a good study. I know that you're trying to make a better shoe. I don't begrudge you that. Right. I know you want a profit. Okay. And if you make a really good shoe, I might buy it. But totally. do I need a shoe? Is there anybody doing that study? And <laughs> do you I, even need a shoe? You won't make any money on that study. I'm sorry. <laughs> and therein lies the problem. But I, I feel like there are a lot of things that we're not exposed to simply because there's not a profit um, That's motivation. That's really, yes. That, it's such a good point. So, I mean, one of the things I think about is like uh, fennel, you know, the little seeds, fennel mm-hmm. seeds. Mm-hmm. You know, we use them to cook with whatever. They're great medicine. So mm-hmm. fennel can help you if you're a nursing mom, can help increase your milk supply. Oh. Um, and additionally, fennel is great for stomach upset. Um, and women know for I don't know how long and wherever fennel grows that you use it. It's grape water for a baby, right? That's what you mm-hmm. make. You make fennel tea and you give it to the baby if they're, they have colic and their tummy's upset from things. Um, so it has this great use in the mother-baby dyad, you know. Uh, yet... I don't really see like not a lot of studies on that or a lot of like being like, look, this simple and really cheap way to solve two problems, like low milk supply and your baby's colicky. <laughs> it's like and hardly healthy. any. And yeah, and it's healthy. It's very simple. It's very safe. You know, there's no toxicity to it. Like It's one of those things like who's ever going to study that? No one cares because there's no money behind it or very little money. You know, there's the company mother love and they make fennel tea and they sell it as a remedy like that. So they obviously make a little money off of that, but just sharing anecdotal evidence, which I will say to me is evidence. So that's how the whole, how I got into all the brain stuff actually was, I didn't start, I started doing a little bit of research, but I didn't know what to research really. Mm. I was a little bit stumped on that. Um, because I actually hadn't framed his, his head injury as like a traumatic brain injury. So I wasn't looking up the right stuff, which is kind of funny now. Um, but really what we were doing was crowdsourcing and talking to a lot of other parents with the same mm. problems and asking, what are you doing? Has anything helped? What helped this? What helped that? And, you know, there were forums and email groups and that kind of thing and just started gathering information and then sharing things we did that we thought were somewhat helpful um, and again, it's that whole anecdotal evidence where, I mean, I had my son at some of the, you know, premier children's hospitals where they have a concussion clinic hmm. and was told to take him to physical therapy. There's no nutritional intervention. And a physical therapist was like helping him with his balance because his, his balance perception was off for a little bit of time. Um, but essentially almost no help at all. 
like, well, you're just going to have to wait it out. And this could be his new normal. And I was like, uh, I don't think so. So I'm going to keep on my journey and figure this out. I was just like, that's unacceptable behavior from you. So go away. (laughs) Well, doctors don't really study nutrition all that much, do they? No, um, unless they specialize in that or they, they take an interest themselves in it. Um, I do understand now that some of the children's clinics, especially that have a concussion clinic for kids, do have nutritionists on staff and they are starting to bring the um, intervention of nutritional ketosis over to head injury from like the seizure clinic, oh, cool. which is where which is where all that research happened anyway and how they found out this is good for the brain. Um, so that's starting to happen. You know, of course, they'll you know, doctors learn more systems change, you know, due to pressure. But, uh, I remember talking to the last pediatrician I probably brought my son to about this problem, which was a while ago. Mm -hmm. And he was a younger, really nice doctor. And he said, clearly, you know more about brain injury and nutrition than I do. And he was just like, just keep on, (laughs) keep going where you're going. Yeah. I've read, and again, it's a different, um, studies or anecdotal that, Getting a young doctor not too far in their career will probably lead to a better health outcome. I haven't read that, but it wouldn't surprise me. You need, I, I, in my experience, and of course, big family, we've seen a lot of doctors for all kinds of different stuff. Emergency room people, regular pediatricians, specialists in different this and that. Um, is you're, Anecdotally, you're right about that. Younger doctor, not too far out. They still are in the research looking at stuff. They are a little bit fresher, um, had a, an education that's closer to the newer research. A little more or, Right, right. It's a little more, that's true. <laughs> Emotionally <laughs> motivated to help you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or a really old doctor, right? Mm-hmm. They've just seen so much stuff. Right. You can't throw them off is the one thing. They're confident. And they anecdotally on the ground know what works. Mm-hmm. And they're not swayed by like, oh, you read some stuff or you have an opinion about this. That's fine. It's your child. They're respectful because they know they're not going to talk you out of it. So they don't really want to get into a head to head thing with you. Mm-hmm. But they'll tell you, OK, I've done 80 of these surgeries and this is my experience. Or I'm not experiencing that. Never was. Don't want to mess with it. I'll send you to so and so because they don't care. <laughs> That's good, too. Yeah. 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 It's very interesting that interacting with the medical world and slowly realizing not fast enough, slowly realizing that their field of study is narrow Mm -hmm. and that's okay. Like I don't fault them for it. They have a field of study I haven't done. You know, so when I walk in emergency room, I'm always really thrilled that those people studied what they studied, do what they do and that they're there. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, but that that's their, their scope is this narrow space. Right. And that, you know, my scope is knowing my kids and knowing the little I do about health. And then I will be respectful and listen and then try to make my own determination about what makes sense. Unless it's a true emergency, in which case I'm just like, yep, I'm going to sit right here and watch you do your work <laughs> and Western, stay out of the way. Western medicine, I think, is far better at triage. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, if you've ever been in a real emergency and watch those people work, it's absolutely astonishing in the best way possible. You know, yeah, I have a lot of respect for that matter of blending the two, which is helpful. Now you've yeah. been participating a whole lot in the, um, unstructured mm-hmm. Facebook group, which is awesome. I'm really thrilled to have. Well, have thank you. you. I'm thrilled to be there. 
What topics have kind of struck your fancy recently? I know as of this recording, free will just came up and sees a lot of traction. <laughs> I had the, <laughs> the most unhelpful reaction to that. Does it matter? <laughs> <laughs> and what could you do about it? <laughs> if it was there or not there, I don't know. I, that's not very philosophical in me. I, I'm well, sure. it's kind of, um, if there is no free will, then what's the point? I think that's sort of where you're going on that. And I, I don't know, I've read the analogy personally that it's sort of like a chess game. You have mm. hundreds, thousands of options, but you're still within the constrained rules. So I would think of it game. more that way um, because you, we lived in a, we live, not lived because I haven't died yet. Um, <laughs> we live in a closed biological system. Mm-hmm. And that has rules. Yeah, that's very true. Right. And so if we're like, we're just finding out a lot about the microbiome, right. And how influential it is even on your personality. So how much free will is put into that? Or like you, you see, you know, I have multiple children and lots of friends with children and now I have a grandchild and my grandchild cracks me up because he's a completely new and unique human being Mm -hmm. and no one in the family has a personality like him. And he's not very old. He hasn't done a whole lot to make his personality to be who he is. Like it's the temperament he's born with. Mm -hmm. And I like watching him and thinking about the conglomeration of the microbiome and the genes and this odd thing that's happening to make this person, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) and he probably doesn't have a lot of free will right now. I would say in terms of like, he's, already showing signs of being a very energetic and somewhat defiant little person Mm -hmm. seems to come very naturally to him from whatever (laughs) conglomeration of things that he has within him. Right. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Right. And who he drafts onto and who mm -hmm. is an influence or what his Mm -hmm. environment is, um, where he's raised. So all all these things are factors that'll influence. You can't change the larger game. The larger game is bacteria influence all of your health, including how your brain is operating, which is going to impact who you are and who you think you are and what you think you can do. You can't change the fact that you're a light sensitive creature, right? Or that you need to have food every day or like simple things like that. There are rules. You don't get to change them. No, but you can go into a sealed room and lock the windows. You can if you want to. Go ahead. Let's see what happens. <laughs> well, you'll be able to get to sleep because you're light sensitive. So, I mean, you can work... You can work you within can work the parameters. Rules. Oh yeah, for sure. You can, you can work that. And people do it all the time. You see them adjusting, you know, trying to adjust. You know, I see people in uh, the office I used to work in when I was a community health educator. I, you know, they gave me my desk in my area and I was like, I'm definitely not sitting at a desk. <laughs> and so I just ghetto jankily made like this, an ability for my desk to be somewhat flexible. So I could stand up if I wanted to sit down if I wanted to, or take it outside. Cause we had an outside area too. And it was within two weeks of starting to work there that three other employees who worked there felt like they had permission because I had taken, that's cool. <laughs> it's my desk. I do what I want. And they built themselves like a thing. And they're like, so glad you did that. I had thought about it and I wasn't sure if it'd be okay. And like that kind of thing. And, and so we were playing with within these parameters of we have to do our job. Mm-hmm. Could we still be a little healthier for moving a little more, being in different positions throughout the day, spending a little more time outside, giving ourselves some flexibility because we're creatures that like to move and need to move. So you're a believer and it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission. 
a hundred percent. Yeah. I don't know if that's really always worked for me, but <laughs> I, yeah, I just don't ask for permission on much. That's for sure. I tend to just do things if I feel like they need to be done. Well, cool. And I probably, from what I've heard from my parents, I've been that way the whole time. <laughs> awesome. Whatever bacteria are running my brain, they like to just do their own thing. <laughs> well, don't they all? <laughs> right. <laughs> what other subjects have come up of recent that have? There were some interesting topics in Unstructured about, um, you know, the gun thing is hot and heavy right now. Of course, a lot of discourse everywhere about that. Most of it being extremely divisive and mm -hmm. falling into the very predictable bifurcated arguments that fall to the left and to the right. And, um, yeah, I've found that so interesting, um, because I, even from the, the youth, those kids who are, you know, mm -hmm. in this culture where these things are happening in their schools, which is horrible for them. Um, I, I was very surprised. It's not a question of what's going on where we live in a culture where we want to kill people and, okay. and have higher rates of violence or so much depression and so, such high rates of suicide, which are much higher than rates of like gun violence, mm -hmm. you know, that including gun isn't violence. that a question that should follow more, including gun violence. Yes. And I feel like that's a more important question than, I mean, to me, to the way I think of things, um, should we have sane gun laws? Yeah. I don't know what those look like. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm not an expert in that. And I, I really don't know. I don't know what the solution would be. It seems kind of silly that people should be walking around with automatic weapons who are just hanging around. Oops. You know, that seems. Uh, so your feeling is that perhaps there's more to it than just the uh, gun itself, whichever way people feel about guns. Right. It's possible that there's more going on here like why do people want to kill each other what what is causing the instability um i i know a lot of things have come up like there is more than one way to kill people including trucks as they're showing in paris and new york right, and, right. And things like that so there's a definite concern over what it is that's causing that well, rage what, right what causes that type of follow through on that type of thinking in a human being, which, you know, it's going to be multi-causal. It's just like, you know, what causes autism is not going to be one thing. You know, it's right. going to be multiple things if we can even narrow those down, you know, to these things. Um, yeah, I feel certain that it's multi-causal. We have enough factors in our culture that are not healthy or not positive that it would be almost easy to start to look at these different lines. It might be easier though. Um, I don't know if you heard about the, the intervention they did in Chicago with gun violence. Um, and I, unfortunately I'm going to forget what it was called, but it was in Chicago and they put it in front of the public health department and said, what if we treated this like we treated an outbreak of disease? Hmm. And they found that working at it that way um, was much more effective so to get at the core of like a, a community where there's a lot of violence, 
whether it's gun violence, you know, shooting and gang deaths or domestic violence. And often those things are all happening in the same neighborhood um, or the same culture, the same, you know, not that domestic violence is only there. It's not, but neither is gun violence. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not only happening in the inner city or, you know, in places where you might expect more of that, or we culturally believe there'll be more of that. But so the intervention was to treat it more like that, to isolate it, and then try to dial down to the originators. So like, like germ theory, (laughs) where's the springing from, and then intervene there with programs that were helpful to these people that gave them an alternative to violence. So it was a conflict resolution job programs, um, more counseling support groups, uh, community building um, activities and groups, that kind of a thing. And I, I, this was, this happened quite a while ago, 12 years old or 15 years old, Hmm. but it was one example of maybe a different way to approach that. You could do the same thing in schools. If you wanted to just dial down to just school shootings, let's say you could do the same thing in schools and find out what are the commonalities um, here and how could we get in there? I've seen some videos where they're like, this is all because of bullying, the bullying culture. I don't know that that's true. And that seems also way too simplified. Maybe the um, bullying culture is part of the uh, symptoms that are causing it. Exactly. That another. was way more my thought. It was exactly like, no, hold on one second. But, <laughs> so now you're like encouraging kids not to believe in more or they'll get shot. holy cow (laughs) and bullying is a tough one too because there is a certain amount of bullying that's going to happen no matter what because we're human beings don't encourage it don't necessarily like it but it is real and there's also the reverse the um quote cry bullying Mm -hmm. where someone may determine that they're more of a victim and they're looking for an outrage. Well, and then, yeah, let's also go to like what I view the culture is becoming like some of the cultures tended towards this victim status. Yeah. And that if I'm really victimized, I have a lot of power. Oh, yeah. The more victim status I can claim, the more power I can claim right now. So there's also that there's so many things going on in this landscape, but also like nobody's looking at how is school designed? is school not somewhat responsible for this? Right. Like school just gets a pass. It's like, um, these, I call them invisible structures in my work. So I talk to people about your phone can be, it's not invisible, but your Mm -hmm. phone can be an invisible structure to you, right? So you are unconsciously using it. Let's say the average, uh, a 12 to 16 year old checks a smartphone is 95 times a day, 95 times a day. (laughs) That's low. That's low, right? Um, so at that point, it's invisible to you. You think your behavior is normal and not causing you any problem. Like it's just an unconscious scenario. But like an institution can also be an invisible structure. So we send all the kids to school. We have this whole structure. It's set up. We use fluorescent lights in some of the crappiest buildings um, where the kids are asked to sit still for very long periods of time and listen to other people talk Kids are not necessarily good at that to begin with, just naturally. There's no concern about their biology, the food that they're eating at lunch, how much movement they're going to get, 
Um, are they engaged in their own learning? Are they responsible for their own learning as well? There's a lot of missing pieces there. Are they empowered when they're at school? The um, few democratic schools that have had a little bit of research or were able to put out sort of reports about how it really works at a democratic school. That's one model that's very different and seems to be much healthier for people because they feel they have some control and some power over their lives. Um, and some studies that say that in many high schools, the kids are as constrained as prisoners physically. Well, I, think, I think some of this is coming from the new standards and thoughts of school. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think back, it wasn't that long ago. I graduated in 88. So oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I graduated in 87. Um, for one, I was a quote free range kid. I grew up in the desert and, Right. There were rattlesnakes. There were coyotes. There were and weren't most people our age. <laughs> well, I mean, stranger. <laughs> I don't things. remember kids being like parents being over concerned about our safety. No, just be home at dinner. I'm not going to hold up for you. Right. Stranger yeah. Things, the TV series on Netflix, mm -hmm. that actually is a representation of my childhood. You know, wow. kids would ride their bike and they'd be off together. Um, stand yeah. by me, all that. And yeah. now parents would be arrested. So I think that's part of the problem. And the schools, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, yeah, well, there used to be recess. We used to play on dangerous um, playground oh, equipment, too. We did, too. <laughs> which I think is good. I, I, it's terrible. Oh, man, we had swings that would go so high. And then the whole them. goal was, yeah, we tried to loop them, but the in the end that can't happen. And so we would jump off of them from, I don't know how many feet, 12, 15 feet. And one kid would always break their arm. <laughs> always someone always breaking the arms and the legs and the ankle. But I think that there's some healthiness there because there's other concerns. Not only are we missing that sense of danger, which is very important, mm -hmm. but now there are kids who, they don't want to get a driver's license, which is anathema to me because at 16, it, there was nothing more important in life than getting a driver's license because that was freedom. Freedom. I was just going to say, so there's this word and obviously it's overused and abused and has lost a lot of meaning. But my concern is that this generation doesn't understand even what freedom would feel like or why it would be important. Right. They have Facebook. They can talk to their friends through a video chat, they don't have to leave the house. They it's have chauffeurs, <laughs> right? And they have chauffeurs via their parents to take them wherever mm -hmm. they want to go. So why learn? And I fear that boredom mm -hmm. has gone away yep. because there's too many things to interact with. I mean, oh god, just walking around the desert, kicking a rock around because you're bored and throwing a rock at something right. or a ball and hitting yep. the wall. The, all of these we, things. Yeah, we wandered through the forest behind my house on Bainbridge Island, just looking for something. I don't know what, <laughs> you know, sometimes mm -hmm. it was salamanders or we found like an old tree house somebody used to have or, you know, it was always something. So is it possible that some of this um, is stymieing the development of the kids and Absolutely. creating a, an isolation? Because part mm -hmm. of the reason you wanted to get in the car was because talking on the phone with your friend gave you cauliflower ear after a while and you wanted to go see them. And it wasn't satisfying. Yeah. It's not okay. satisfying. It's not physically satisfying. You know, you're, that right. you're missing that really important, you know, 
physical interaction and touching. And like you see teens, especially when we were traveling in some other countries and I would see teens hanging around and I kept showing the boys because it was so not American. These teens have their arms around each other and they're kind of hanging around in like a dog pile in the park. And the Mm -hmm. sheer amount of touching that they were doing was so nothing that you see here. And kids are actively dissuaded from touching each other and and being physically close. And now there's rules about not hugging and you know, this mm-hmm. fearful thing about humans touching each other, which is also a crazy insanity. Um, yeah, isolation is not good for human beings. And this feeling that you've somehow made up for it. And I know too many parents, I know how they feel is like their kid is physically safe in the room gaming and talking to their friends. Right. You know where they are. So I worked with this parent coach. She trained me a long time ago. And she said this sentence that really threw me off. At first, I was like, what? And she said, from conception, you are at odds with your child. And I was like, what? Come on, that makes no sense. Why? Hmm. Like, I was very opposed to her saying this. And she said, well, you both have different jobs in the world. Your job as a parent, and you can hardly stop your biology from wanting to do this, is to protect that child make sure that they live at the very least that they survive mm-hmm. at the very most that they're thriving. Right? right. That's your job. And you can't turn that off. There's no button in there to turn that off. It is hard, but what's a child's job to explore, to mm-hmm. go to do, and then to be. And these two things are at odds. Now it doesn't mean you're always at odds, but especially when it comes to the, the developing adult, this is where you see that boom, boom, play out. And, uh, I was very happy to see my 16 year old, uh, just got done with all his drivers ed, the live driving courses. And now he's cool. doing his 50 hours of driving before he can get his license in May. <laughs> and, uh, he has his permit every time we walk to the car, he's got his permit out and he grabs the keys from me. Uh-huh. And I mean, this is in, you know, LA traffic, fog, driving rain, He's like, Good. nope, I'm driving all of it, all of it. You know, right. let's just see how I do, see how I do. And he's become a great driver. He's doing a really good job. But it was also a relief to see he wants the freedom. <laughs> he wants yes. to go do the things on his own by himself. And I also let them free range. So we live in a small town, but uh, they basically are like, they'll, they do parkour and different things. They grab their cameras, do whatever. And they're like, we're going to go parkour here, do that or whatever. And they walk out the door most times with no cell phone. Cool. Because between the two of them, they only own one flip phone. Ah. <laughs> uh, so how do we get back to that? I mean, it's, it's great that you're in your family, you're doing, you're setting an example. But as a society, I mean, we have some real structural problems that have been built around it. And you mentioned the smartphone. Yeah. I've, I've had this theory that um, the most important events of the 21st century were 9-11 and the iPhone. I, yeah, I could totally see that. Yeah. yeah. People don't realize, you know, we have the whole thing of it was, what was life before Kennedy? What was life after Kennedy? Mm. Um, what was life before 9-11? You know, with the airplanes at all the airports and stuff, what was life after 9-11? What was life before the iPhone? And by that, I'm including Android and everything that followed, but it was the right, iPhone the whole thing. that brought that in. 
And what is this significant changes? I, you know, I haven't posted it yet, but, um, I recorded a podcast. So, you know, where we live in Southern California, we were the ones who had the huge, uh, the biggest wildfire in California history. The Thomas fire mm-hmm. was, uh, came within a mile and a half, two miles of our house. How'd that help the weed smell? Oh yeah, it was much better. <laughs> what was amazing was that sometimes you could smell both. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, then shortly after that, which is very typical for wildfire burned areas, we had a huge mudslide that killed mm. 29 people in a very small area. And that was also mm. just a couple miles from our house. And then we've had significant, um, every time it rains a significant amount, everyone gets evacuated because they don't know what hill will slide next or where or when. It oh, is Lord. extremely stressful, extremely mm. stressful. It's one of the most, like I've never been in an area where there's so much natural disasters that were so impactful um, directly to me. Now, I did not lose anyone and I didn't lose my house. Um, uh-huh. And it was still impactful in an emotional, psychological way. Um, so I recorded with Rio. She lives here as well, just up the hill. So she was trapped in a different area than I was <laughs> during <laughs> all of this. So we recorded something about the catastrophe, which was that we didn't have any services here for a period of days. And we were also blocked off. We only have the 101 is the only way in and out of our area. So we, we butt up against some pretty tall uh, mounds for the California coast. Mm. And then there's the 101 and that's about it. And the ocean. So when those were both blocked off by fire and then by slides, cause the big mudslide that killed people wasn't the only one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had no services. And so we had this small town and no one had internet and, uh, some of the cell towers had made it through, but were kind of janky. So like I had one bar of service where some people had no service at all. Um, for, I think it was three and a half or four days. That was our town. Hmm. And we were hanging around town and I was just laughing. I'm like, this is what it was like. Mm -hmm. This is what it was like before the iPhone. Mm-hmm. And so I can, I can say almost everyone in the town noticed immediately mm-hmm. this huge shift in behavior, which is that everyone was out of their houses, everyone, all the mm-hmm. kids, all the parents, everyone's outside. Mm-hmm. And I was really surprised that these people are normally inside. That's, that's crazy. And then mm-hmm. like, if you were in the coffee house, everyone's talking, right? They're hanging around drinking coffee, talking at every single restaurant, every single place. No one had their head down. There was nothing to look at. Mm -hmm. The only way you got information was through other people. Mm -hmm. And like the most important person in the room was the guy who just got a ride from his friend, the fireman who was at the mudslide site because Uh, he could tell what was going on. (laughs) Right. And it was the most interesting experiment besides living um, in our canvas getup for four months was just this few days. And afterwards, there were many people in the community who said, let's continue to talk to each other and say hello and interact. And what I found is the community is a little more fluid that way. Mm-hmm. So when you go to the coffee house, it's not like you're annoying anyone. If you interrupt them and say, hey, how's it going today? You know, what'd you hear about? Da, 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 da. And there's mm-hmm. a little more social cohesion. Uh, super interesting. Mm-hmm. But it was to me, I was just like, oh, we're in the 80s again. This is great. 
So in a year from maybe, now, they'll they'll get over it and be back to normal. <laughs> because so compelling and so addictive and sure. so invisible and mm-hmm. yet so visible. Um, it's it's kind of a mess. I mean, yeah, it it's spread like a disease in a in a way. Mm-hmm. And I think it was designed that way. I think that wasn't a mistake. I mean, uh, not, yeah. not to the extent, I'm sure, but it seems like uh, recently on CBS, they did this family with four kids, a 48-hour test where they gave them no limits. And they had all this stuff, games, iPads, cell phones, et cetera. And then they had the, the crew and then people tracking. The mm-hmm. kids had no limits at all. The oldest child spent 46 of 48 hours on the screens mostly mm-hmm. game playing, right? And then it went down from there to the younger kids, but it was still like significant chunk of time. Like they had zero sure. capability of controlling. Well, you and I are in a unique spot to where we're neither fish nor fowl. We don't fit in exactly because mm-hmm. our, our formative years were pre-internet, pre-iPhone. Right. And by pre-internet, the internet right. actually was around in the 60s. I mean the World Wide right. Web, and yeah. that did not come into prominence until after Y2K, really. Right. Yeah, I remember that. So, honestly, from our 20s to early 30s, eh, yeah, there were cell phones, but they were flip phones or they're candy bar phones. And, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't that big of a deal. It was just, oh, good, I don't have to go to a pay phone. That's true. That's very true. Yeah. Only kids texted because nobody could do that stupid language of the triple D. (laughs) And even seeing a text would just make me angry. Right. (laughs) I forgot about that. (laughs) So we saw the life beforehand, but a lot Mm -hmm. of the kids, the kids, God, I sound old, but a lot of the generation behind us has always been exposed to the internet and some have been always exposed to a smartphone. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say that's unfortunate. I think there's a lot of ways to learn and gather information. So like I make my kids tell me, okay, we're in the library. Don't use a computer and go Mm -hmm. find out X, Y, and Z. So that what if for some reason, like those few days, you still want to do your paper, but the internet's not available to you. Or when we were traveling, we didn't always buy into the Wi-Fi or whatever. Like, so then how do you gather information if you don't have access to that? You can still get information, mm-hmm. you know, so how do you do that? And I, I wanted them to have some old world skills, you know. <laughs> if you could find a library at the card catalog, good luck. <laughs> no, but, uh, you know, I, I worked in the library. Um, that was one of my first jobs. And uh, so I, I taught them, like, if you have a general idea of what these numbers mean on the side of this book... Mm-hmm. You can find things in the category that you're looking for. And so I taught them how to use the library or how to ask people. And the other thing they do is they apprentice with people. Uh, so Aiden has been apprenticing at a blacksmith shop. He's apprenticed in a climbing gym. That's awesome. Uh, so how do you get information about this stuff? You can look it up, but that is, it means nothing. It means nothing to a guy who wants to hire you to work metal. What mm-hmm. he wants to know is that you can work metal and learn. And right. so you go in there and you give him your Fridays and see what happens. Mostly the learn. Yeah, because just the teach learn. You. He'll teach you to work the metal, especially if you're eager. Yeah. Because people yeah. And you can, you can watch all those things on YouTube and I think build like a schema, which is awesome. And my kids use YouTube to teach themselves stuff all the time. 
very interesting. Like they've totally self-taught uh, editing videos right now is their new thing they want to do. And so they've been making these little movies and, and learning how to do that with, you know, and when they get stuck and they don't know, they're like, oh, well, let's go look it up on so-and-so's blog because they know all about whatever, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, going and doing things hands-on and asking older people what they know and how they know it. Uh, and I don't mean old people. I mean, people who are in their thirties who work, you know, knowledgeable people, knowledgeable people who have a skill set. How right. do you do that? So they've taken a film class cause they were interested in making films. So they've gone out and filmed an event and interviewed a celebrity and did mm-hmm. that kind of stuff to see what that's like. And yeah, they've Which done celebrity? all kinds of, I don't remember some musician I was unfamiliar with who performed in Santa Barbara here, Oh, okay. but they had to dress up and look nice and, you know, film this and that, like do a, a little promo piece for okay. this theater here. I thought it could be Brian Callen or something. Oh, they would love that. Yeah. <laughs> you probably could make that happen. Yeah. Although my kids have hilarious things to say about all the different podcasters I listen to. And, uh, um, I love hearing their fresh perspective, which is like, uh, they've said things like, yeah, you know, Joe Rogan doesn't think so, but he's pretty sexist. <laughs> okay. This is from my sons. Hmm. <laughs> I can see that. Um, I actually just, agree with it, but he's not malicious. No, not malicious at all. No. So that's a, I asked, that was my follow-up question. I said, do you think he's a nice guy or that he means anything by it? They're like, no, no, he's, he seems like a nice guy. Yeah, he's a guy guy. <laughs> right. And we actually, part of the gravitational pull is we need more of that. Of course. That's why people are, I mean, look, I mean, in some ways I'm married to a person that's a lot like that, mm-hmm. right? He's you know, a former Marine and he likes doing these crazy workouts and he works with stone for goodness sake and has giant forearms like Popeye. And, you know, he ends his conversations with like, okay, bye. And you were like, wait, I'm pretty sure we weren't, (laughs) but okay. This verbal part of your brain does not work like mine. (laughs) You know? Um, but you know, there's a lot of evolutionary health and science that goes into like this choice of mate, right? Mm -hmm. He is uh, able to protect my family physically I never consciously thought about that very much, but that's totally true. You know, there's, there's interesting things that are there. Like he has the, you know, the hallmark facial structure of a person with higher testosterone, Mm -hmm. you know, which is, there's a lot of studies about that. That's sort of interesting. And, um, and he also is unapologetically just himself. Like I can't be anyone else. I just have to be me. Like Mm -hmm. I like doing art, but I like being super fit too. So, so what? I don't care. You know, Rogue, and that is something that probably is why you listen to Rogan too. They're, he's very much that way and yeah. terribly curious. My husband also is terribly curious. So he has at times been a practicing Buddhist. He learned to do Reiki while he was in the army. Oh. <laughs> like, he has a really, uh, you know, wide open mind. He's very curious about lots of things and not afraid to do and try different stuff, which I find endearing and interesting as well. Um, I may have to talk and, to him in the future. Right. He's, he's an odd character for sure. He's <laughs> definitely, definitely a character. Um, he, yeah, he's an interesting person. And so it's refreshing probably because it's more rare. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, John is the one person in my life that encourages me to be more of me and has, that's a, um, something as a woman, I, learned to think wasn't okay. I'm a fairly intense person. Um, I'm not like opinionated, but 
I can be, what was the, the biohacking thing that was, that was oh. the best thing that was posted in unstructured lately <laughs> was someone went on a rant against biohacking. Steve Magnus. Yes. He's, yes. Thank um, you for bringing, I can't remember. He his wrote name. a book on sports science. I think it was literally sports science or, oh, okay. but he's, um, he's a great source for that information. He trained with the Nike team oh. and, um, Alberto Salazar. Okay. Steve Magnus is the guy who left and is working with the federal authorities. He's oh. very anti-doping. Oh. He was the one who stated that he saw Salazar injecting athletes, which supposedly That's was why it was familiar. Okay. But you could see where somebody of that nature, you know, genuine, um, yes. scientific, but also very old school in the coaching aspect. So I, I think he's a great blend of of science and art because coaching love that. is a combination of science and art. Absolutely. I love that. And it would also make total sense why he would hate biohacking. Oh yes. Or this idea of biohacking, which probably isn't actually a certain thing depends on who you are and what you think it is, but, or he would really, really it's despise. Like, yeah. The Dave Hack. Asprey version of like, I'm doing all these things and I'm going to live till I'm 180. And not talking so much about the drugs that he takes. And mm -hmm. yeah, there's, um, I'm not, I'm not a fan of that. I don't have time like, or the wherewithal to pay that much attention to myself. And I don't know that any human who's sort of normal does in terms of like, I took three flights today and I checked my blood after each one to see if my biohacking is working to keep me from getting jet lag. I'm like, seriously, just take a nap and a melatonin, like, you well, know, it's or lay on the beach. It's a shortcut to try to get somewhere with, with less effort or trying to game or cheat the system. Like yeah. I have a weird philosophy on, um, con men and suckers. Hmm. And that is that no one who is not greedy becomes a sucker hmm. because okay. con men get people on greed. Oh, true. I can get that money for doing very little or, Oh, I do this favor and you'll give me all that. Right. In a way, the victim does share some of the responsibility. I'm not saying, sure. Hey, go con men. I like you. No, I don't like you either. Right. I see what you're saying. I think that's totally true. And, uh, you know, there's this appeal to people who want to understandably, like there's some people who are like, they want a shortcut to better health and doesn't everybody mm -hmm. <laughs> right? want it to be more effortless or whatever. I just don't think like self-monitoring all the time is a shortcut. It's extremely time consuming and expensive. And my problem right. with the whole biohacking, it's not accessible for most people. No. So I'm always like the lazy way first or the least intervention first. That's sort of my take on things. You know, like if you start to have problems with your sleep, do the easiest stuff first, like sleep. black out your room, right? <laughs> uh, stop using electronics 30 minutes at the minimum before you go to bed an hour if you're more disciplined, but like just try a couple things and see what happens. Right. right? Or read for a book. some people, yeah, read a book instead of watching something, which is how I generally go to sleep each night. I love reading. That's when I do most of my reading. Um, you know, and we've developed that sort of family habit. Everybody does that. Um, but there's also this thing like, 
to be honest, like biohacking is a lot of dudes, a lot. Mm. And because I'm in sort of that environment. So I see a lot of the social media posts and stuff. And there's a lot of like, look at me, I've got blue blockers on and I'm super rich. And I'm like, great. (laughs) (laughs) I get to see you again without a shirt on super. (laughs) Oh, there's that. There's (laughs) that. I mean, it's a little bit like I'm very special. Look at me. There's a significance. I'm part of this special tribe. You know, it's Mm -hmm. meeting some of those human needs. People are paying attention to me. I'm important now to this group and I'm teaching them that. I'm smarter than you. I'm much smarter than you. That's a lot of it. There's quite a few (laughs) people in that group that it's just, that's your thing. But for me, it's like, go outside more, eat food that's food, sleep when you're supposed to sleep, like when you're tired, don't overwork yourself, try to have good relationships and get rid of the relationships that are bad for you. Right there, you solved a lot of health problems right there. Even if you didn't quit smoking, do those things first. True. True. Yeah. I mean, it was that, you know, you know about the Rosetto study, uh, the Italy, uh, yes. transplants. Yeah, yeah. I listened to your podcast, so I cheated. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so that's a great example or why people could have like high smoking rates in Bosnia, but lower rates of heart disease or, or whatever. And that's not true everywhere. Like right. every go culture and share the, Go and share the story real quick because Okay. So the Rosetto study is where they did a longitudinal study. These were, uh, Rosetto, Pennsylvania. So it started off as a small town, a little village, and it was mostly transplants from the same town, Rosetto, Italy. Mm -hmm. They all came sort of not all at once, but they all came. And so they already had this cohesion in this culture that was Italian Mm -hmm. and they sort of just transplanted it into Pennsylvania and they just kept it up. These people drank a lot, smoked a lot, didn't eat at the time what was considered any kind of healthy diet or having lots of cheese and lots of meat and and that kind of stuff. And uh, this this longitudinal study showed that I think the initial study was that they had zero incidence of heart attacks or heart disease during the first initial period. They looked at them compared to, so this is the same age people men and women, you know, in this town compared to a town that was nearby, which had your typical American rate of heart disease. So then they studied them for even longer to see what was going on and determined that it was their culture, their very cohesive culture where they really took care of each other and had strong ties and relationships and felt they could depend on each other. It was this Italian culture they brought with them that was health protective above and beyond their smoking rates, what they ate, the stress they encountered, because they were immigrants, they encountered tremendous stressors. I had one question on that. Yeah. What was their actual diet? Was it an American diet or was it their traditional Italian diet? It was their traditional Italian diet, which they were able to stick to. But as time went on, they became more Americanized and then their rates of disease went up. Okay. Well, so the the culturally appropriate diet like Matt Fitzgerald talks about in diet cults, mm-hmm. uh, could could have been a factor. Oh, definitely just, probably was part of the factor. But at the time, and I think it was still enough of a big discrepancy mm-hmm. in terms of their diet wasn't super Americanized, but it wasn't healthy either, quote unquote, right. at the time. So they were saying they were smoking and drinking more than their <laughs> American counterparts were. Mm-hmm. And that they were eating, you know, cheeses and meats and breads, which essentially was the American diet also at the time. And at the time, convenience foods really didn't exist. 
So that couldn't have been a difference. Um, and I would have to go deeper into that to see what was the difference later. Uh, Please check on that because I just think that that might be a good question. But as you enter the fifties, convenience foods enter the picture. Mm, Okay. Not on a huge scale, but on a scale that was popular. Um, so that could have been a factor too, but yeah, I'd have to dig into it to know exactly. But there's just, for me, it's more like, so I, I wouldn't call it biohacking. In fact, when I work with people, I call it bio alignment. You just align yourself with life. Life is a certain thing. Like we were talking about before, it has rules, mm-hmm. you know, there are some rules. You're not going to break them. Like evolution determined these things a long t- before you got here. Sure. <laughs> and so if you follow just a couple of the basic rules, like you need to feel safe in your community or like within your small tight knit group, that's really important. So if you're in a domestic violence situation, you are quickly eroding your health and you do have to do something about that if if you would like to live a long time and be healthy sure. and, and feel good like that's the other thing is like you're supposed to feel good right. you're supposed to right. have fun which is why you like to drink beer right mm-hmm. <laughs> like, i drink wine i want to have fun too we all need to have fun you know that's part of the needs as well and so there's a rigid idea that you know i just think you can align yourself a little more gently be kind to yourself because also you were born into this time. I was born into this time. I didn't know what it would look like. I didn't know the iPhone would come up. I didn't, I didn't know any of this. I, I couldn't have prepared for the landscape I live in right now. I couldn't have prepared for the current presidency. I couldn't ha- you know, I couldn't have predicted these right. things. And so then you're doing what humans have always done, which is you adapt as you move along and you're as flexible as possible. That is actually the perfect note to end on. Be kind it to is. yourself. <laughs> Be kind to yourself. You're just human. Just do your best. <laughs> so now how can people get a hold of you and contact? So um, I have my main website is Jennifer, my full name, uh, jenniferaguilar.net, J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R-A-G-U-I-L-A-R.net. And then I also have primalbrain.net. Perfect. Um, so I kind of offloaded all the brain stuff to its own site. Um, including the podcast and stuff like that, because I do have other projects coming up and I want it to be clear which ones I'm working on because I am interested in a lot of things. So there, and I'm on Instagram and I'm on Facebook, but I don't do Twitter. Okay. Try to limit that for myself, (laughs) for my own health. (laughs) Twitter has that rep. Well, thank you so much. And please keep contributing and unstructured. Oh yeah. I love it. It's been great. Can't wait to get the feedback on this. Yeah, yeah, it'll be fun. Hey there. Thanks again for listening. And if you don't mind, please tell a friend. If you like the content, most apps you listen to probably have a button to share it. Also, check us out on social media. We're under Unstructured P on most systems.